Welcome to Broken But Not Divided with Andrew Youssef. This is a listener-supported production of Humanity Vivified. To learn more about Humanity Vivified, please visit www.andrewyusuf.ca. Christ is risen. And today it's actually appropriate because we've been celebrating Pascha or Easter for a few days now. Let us begin our episode for today titled Unresolved Controversies with a quote from St. Ephraim the Syrian's Sermon on Faith. He says, Controversy in moderation is a life-enhancing medicine, but in excess, it's a deadly poison. In the previous episodes, we talked about what controversies are, and then we talked about resolved controversies. Today we will be talking about an unresolved controversy. And by no means is it the only one unresolved controversy, but it's a classic, so let us explore it a bit. Now, of course, like all unresolved controversies, there are two sides of the story. One side is the Eastern Church, better known as the Orthodox Church, and the other is the Western Church, better known as the Roman Catholic Church. I will acknowledge my bias right off the start and say that I feel more affinity toward the Eastern side. You would think that given that there are two sides of the story, that they would keep each other in check and maybe the constant attacks on each other's narratives would help in putting a stop to the development of myths. If you think so, then guess what? You could not be more wrong. I will look at five classic myths that you would likely see in a Sunday school class or in a catechism class on both sides. Myth number one is this. The church had no divisions before the Great Schism. It does not take a history book to see how mythical that is. Rather, it really takes reading the New Testament. We have Judaizers and the church in Corinth that is divided upon itself. Paul had to deal with such schisms throughout his ministry. Some would object, saying that this is about post-biblical history. And the answer would be that even then, it's still a myth. The church suffered through a schism between East and West after the Council of Nicaea, a fourfold schism in Antioch that the Council of Constantinople tried to fix and failed, another schism between Alexandria and Antioch after the Council of Ephesus, a schism between all the churches on the one hand and what came to be known as the Assyrian Church of the East, a schism between the churches of Egypt, half of Antioch, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Armenia on the one hand, the Church of Greece, half of Antioch, and Rome, on the other hand, after the Council of Chalcedon. And the list goes on and on. Even if someone were to say that this was the first schism between Constantinople and Rome, or East and West, they would be wrong. At least three schisms took place between East and West. The schism after Nicaea, another one that is known as the Achaean Schism, and yet another one is known as the Photian Schism. Fortunately, there was almost no time when one could say that the church was one in a universal and definitive sense. But how can that be the case when we confess the attributes of the church and say that she is the one holy, catholic, and apostolic church? Well, this will be a topic for a future episode in a future season, God willing. Now let us turn to myth number two. This was about Roman Catholics adding the filioque to the creed or the Eastern Orthodox rejecting the addition. First, let us define what the filioque is. The filioque is a Latin term meaning and the Son. The clause of the creed defining the Holy Spirit originally said, 
we believe in the Holy Spirit, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. Period. Later, some churches in the West added the clause and the Son, making the reading go like this. We believe in the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. But before this addition took place, some would pretend like it was unheard of to speak of the Spirit being from the Father and the Son. Here is how wrong this is. The Church had theologians who spoke about the Spirit being from the Father and the Son before any schism, and in fact before any ecumenical council, such as St. Gregory the Armenian. He does not put this in the creed per se, but he speaks of the Spirit as one who is from the Father and the Son. I will eventually dedicate a whole episode to the Filioque in future seasons. Some churches in the West began including this addition since the 6th and 7th century. It was later adopted in Rome, and that is when the church in the East became aware of the issue. The issue was heavily debated and condemned by Photius of Constantinople. This took place in the 9th century. The schism did not actually take place until the 11th century, despite the church in the East condemning the addition that was found in the West. Some Western churches used the Filioque since the 6th century. Rome adopted the addition as official in the 11th century. The debates happened in the 9th century. The Filioque was quite a side issue, and by no means was the main cause of the 11th century schism between East and West. Myth number three, and probably the hardest to swallow for a lot of people. Catholics and Orthodox were no longer communing since 1054 AD. While it seems convenient to say that once a schism takes place that the parties involved were not taking communion in each other's churches, it is simply unfounded. Like other schisms in church history, the people did not know much about it, neither did they care that much about where they were commuting. If you were a tradesman and you were going from Italy to Constantinople, you communed in the church closest to your location. Clergy might have no longer concelebrated, but the lady sure did. This schism was properly solidified after the sack of Constantinople by the Crusaders in 1204. It was then that the people on the lay level wanted nothing to do with those who killed their people and raped their women and stole their treasures, both private and ecclesial. With that in mind, some historians believe that the Greeks and Latins together partook of the Eucharist seeking one another's forgiveness in the last divine liturgy in Hagia Sophia in 1453. This is 399 years after the so-called Great Schism in 1054 AD. Such forgiveness was quickly forgotten as the focus was on survival under Ottoman rule. What remained in the conscience of the Greeks from then onwards was not such forgiveness, but rather the bitter taste of the sack of Constantinople in 1204 and the very famous phrase, better the sultan's turban than the cardinal's hat. One wonders how things would have changed if the memory that remained was that of forgiveness in 1453 rather than the memory of the sack of Constantinople in 1204. I want to make this more controversial. I can't agree with Andrew Moore. I can't disagree with Andrew Moore. If any of these sentences describe you, head over to www.patreon.com humanityvivified where you can participate in the private discussion forum of this podcast, read and listen to exclusive content. Now, let's go back to today's episode.
Let us now turn to yet another myth. Myth number four. Catholics and Orthodox are not in communion because the anathemas between them have not been lifted. Although the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Oriental Orthodox Church have more in common in terms of dogma, spirituality, and ethos, they have more difficulty retaining communion as their separation entails anathemas from councils, local and ecumenical. That makes the canonical procedure much harder. But when it comes to the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church, the issue is reversed. There is more difficulty in seeing eye to eye in terms of dogmatic formulation, spirituality, and ethos. However, it is easier, canonically speaking, for them to be reconciled. After all, the anathemas involved are not from one church against the other, but rather from one Pope of Rome against one ecumenical patriarch. Historians suggest that the anathema placed by the Pope of Rome against the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople does not have much bearing, as it was placed by Cardinal Humbert, the Pope's representative, after the Pope in Rome has died. This complicates the matter. Does it really mean much if the anathema is indirectly placed by a dead Pope? No one knew how to deal theologically or canonically with an anathema placed by the Pope's representative post-mortem. Regardless of the status of these anathemas, the successors of the Pope and Patriarch responsible for the Great Schism, namely Pope Paul VI and Ecumenical Patriarch Athenagoras, lifted the anathemas as a gesture of goodwill on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem in 1965. This means that the anathemas that caused the schism to take place, regardless of how seriously these were taken by the people at different times to begin with, have ceased to be effective. Now, your follow-up question might be, then how come the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics no longer commune with each other? This is because the developments each church had after the schism makes it difficult for them to see eye to eye. Eastern Orthodox Christians find it difficult to look at the doctrinal developments in Rome, such as Mariological doctrines of Immaculate Conception and Coronation of Mary, and Papal doctrines such as Papal Supremacy and Infallibility. Roman Catholic Christians find it equally difficult to accept the developments of hesychasm, a controversy in the 14th century regarding how union with God is achieved through his energies rather than a direct contact with the divine essence, which is beyond human reach. The formulation of such doctrine can be difficult to reconcile with Roman Catholic theology. So it is not just about the undoing of the past issues that caused the schism, but rather also to examine all subsequent issues. Furthermore, it is not just about what the ecumenical patriarch thinks. It's important that other patriarchs in communion with the ecumenical patriarch to be of one mind regarding their understanding of Roman Catholic doctrines as they relate to their Eastern Orthodox confession. Unfortunately, that did not take place before the lifting of the anathemas, which renders what happened in 1965 to be merely a nice gesture on the practical level. Some patriarchs of other Eastern Orthodox churches did in fact show their disapproval of such gesture. Now does that mean that there is no hope? Realistically, a union between Rome and Constantinople is unlikely in our lifetime. I say that as an outsider of both traditions, which means insiders might have a different opinion. If the Eastern Orthodox Church is to be realistic about an endeavor for union with other churches, it should probably look first to the Oriental Orthodox Church. 
but let us stick to east-west dialogue for now. In case you think that this means that there is no hope whatsoever, let me make a few suggestions to the contrary. Once upon a time, East and West disagreed on clerical celibacy, and whether clergy should be bearded or not. Some theologians tried to universalize the practice of their church in such petty matters. Others did not dignify such claims with a response in the East. Today, we have gone as far as having Western Rite Orthodox jurisdictions and Eastern Rite Catholic jurisdictions. This is no small deal, given that people were sweating the existence of such ritual differences at some point. Papal primacy is being rediscussed in the light of Roman Catholic dialogue with other Western churches, such as the Anglican Church. Thankfully, this is making the Roman Catholic Church think more deeply about its historical claims regarding papal supremacy and infallibility. Theologians of the Roman Catholic Church can disagree today about the papacy in context. Is it a matter of function? Is it a matter of intrinsic value? Is it an eternal concept or a temporary one that worked for a specific day and age? The fact that these questions are on the table is in and of itself a development and a progression in the right direction. There is hope, but there is so much work to be done. Prayers need to be offered. Much humility needs to be acquired. Then we can look at fulfilling unity that we may have one flock under one shepherd, being Christ himself, not the Pope of Rome and not the ecumenical patriarch. What certainly needs to come to an end is baseless antagonism, false claims about what others believe, where multiplicity of opinions have always existed, just to name a few things. Allow me to conclude today's episode with a quote from Father Thomas Shrine, a polished Roman Catholic priest, a welcoming person, whom I had the privilege of meeting in person at some point, and author of one of the most practical books I read, namely Christian Unity, How You Can Make a Difference. Father Thomas writes in the conclusion of his book, O God, Holy and Eternal Trinity, we pray for your church in the world. Sanctify its life. Renew its worship. Empower its witness. Heal its divisions. Make visible its unity. Lead us with all our brothers and sisters toward communion in faith, life, and witness, so that united in the one body by the one spirit, we may together witness to the perfect unity of your love. Amen. Consider rating this episode on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're feeling generous, consider becoming a patron at www.patreon.ca slash humanityvivified. Until the next episode, Christ is risen.